Matthew chapter 8, and we'll read from verse 5 to verse 13. So, Matthew 8 and verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray uh, this morning as we hear from you again in your word, uh, that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things in your word. Show us our saviour, show us our sin, uh, and show us, we pray, the great rescue of Christ at Calvary. Uh, This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus marvelled. Jesus was amazed. Only twice uh, in the whole Bible, are we told that Jesus is amazed by anything? And both times, it's kind of the same category. Both times, it concerns faith. The first time, it's not in Matthew's Gospel, it's actually in Mark's Gospel. And Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith his own people have. Okay, it's in his hometown, uh, and his own people, the ones who've known him all his life, do not believe in him. And we're told Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. Uh, and here, verse 10... Again, Jesus is amazed, this time not by lack of faith, but by the show of faith. When Jesus heard this, heard the centurion's words, he marveled. What does it take to make Jesus amazed? It's a rare occurrence. In fact, only one that's positive. But it takes the show of faith, extraordinary faith from this centurion. Uh, So very simply this morning, I want to look at three aspects of faith, okay, three characteristics uh, of true faith. And the first, very simply, is this. Faith is open to all. Faith is open to all. Uh, the man who shows faith in this story is not a likely candidate. It's a surprising source that this faith uh, is shown in. Uh, verse 5, Jesus is down in Capernaum and a centurion comes forward to him. Now, children, do you know what a centurion is? A centurion is a soldier in the Roman army. He was probably a Syrian or perhaps Lebanese. He probably wasn't Roman, but he was one of the conquerors of the Jewish people. This is not someone who's grown up in a Christian home. This is not someone who was taught the Bible at home, who had a little kid's Bible on the shelf. This is not someone who watched Veggie Tales. This is not someone whose mum and dad taught him uh, to sing the Psalms at dinner or brought him along to Sunday school at three o'clock in the afternoon. 
Uh, this is someone who grew up in a completely non-Bible home. Uh, he's not Jewish. He's never been to the temple, not been allowed into the temple. He hasn't taken part in the great feasts and festivals. He's not been going along to the synagogue and worshipping week by week, hearing the Bible taught. He's an outsider. And that's one of the things that most surprises Jesus. Verse 10, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. One of the huge surprises here is it is an outsider, as it were, who is showing faith. Uh, not someone who's grown up on the inside of God's people. And that, I think it's both an encouragement and a warning to us. Uh, it should be a huge encouragement to us in that it shows that the gospel is open to all. It's been a huge theme of Matthew's gospel that, that Jesus isn't just the rescuer of his own race, if you like, the Jewish nation, but, but Jesus has come to show salvation to the ends of the earth. So, so if you remember, Matthew's gospel opens with a genealogy on this big, long list of names. And it's the kind of thing you, you want to read over and skip through because you get a bit lost to how to pronounce all these funny kings and the like. But, but mixed into that genealogy, we saw, Matthew made sure that we, we highlighted a few strange characters. There was Ruth, who was a Moabitess, not a Jew. There was Rahab, who, remember, was, lived in Jericho and let the spies uh, into uh, the city. Again, not a Jew, but someone who came from the outside and came in. It was Matthew just signalling that, that Jesus was going to be about more than just Israel. And then pretty soon after Jesus was born, the wise men came. The wise men weren't Jewish, were they? They were from the east, probably from Babylon. And they came and bowed down before Jesus. His people from the nations, okay, the wise men probably from, probably kind of from Persia, Iran, as it might be today, coming and bowing down before the Messiah. And in fact, the whole gospel is heading towards, well, the climax, the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. There is no tribe or country, there's no language on the face of the earth that is outside the call of the gospel. Uh, that's why in verse 11... Uh, Jesus says that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the, uh, the sort of founding fathers of the Jewish nation. And right the way through the Old Testament, there's been this expectation that one day God will put on a huge feast, a huge party. That's why they're reclining at the table. Again, children in the olden days when they had a, a feast, instead of sitting at chairs, didn't have to sit up straight or whatever Isaac said earlier, they sort of lay down at the counter, arrested as they feasted. And one day that the Old Testament told us there's going to be a huge feast and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and all who are faithful to God will be there. There'll be a big celebration of God's rescue. And amazingly here, Jesus is saying it's not just going to be for the Jewish people, as you might have expected, but actually many, huge numbers from the edges of the earth, from the east and the west. I mean, the encouragement, therefore, is whatever your background, whatever your race, whatever language is your first language, whatever nation you were born in, whatever colour your skin, Jesus calls you to that banquet. He calls you to have faith, and all you need is that faith to enter. So many kind of clubs in our world, so many societies require well, standards to enter, don't they? You have to get certain results in your exams to go to certain universities. 
You have to be from a particular background to join a particular club. Uh, the only entry requirement for God's kingdom is showing faith in Jesus as his Messiah, as his rescuer. So, so it is a huge encouragement and a spur to us to make sure as a church, we, we don't think that somehow the, the gospel is just for people who were born in England or people who are just in Leeds or people who look like us or sound like us, whatever us may be. No, the gospel is for everybody. It'd be a great thing to pray for Christchurch Central in our early days that actually would be a hugely diverse church, a really different church, uh, that we'd have people from, uh, that would reflect the diversity of the city. Leeds, amazingly, one of the great things about Leeds, it is a very diverse city, isn't it? There are people from all sorts of countries who live here. It's a big place, lots of jobs, lots of people come here to work. Wouldn't it be great if the church in five years, ten years' time began to reflect that diversity? That's something to pray for that God would bring the different nations to Christ through our outreach here at Christchurch Central. But, but I do think Jesus' words here are a warning too. They are an encouragement, that expansion of the gospel to all nations, but they're a warning too. Verse 12. Uh, yes, many will come from the east and west to recline at table, but verse 12, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sons of the kingdom here uh, are, are those who've grown up inside the kingdom of Israel. Okay, they're, they're those who are ethnically Jewish. They're the ones who have grown up hearing the Bible taught, the Old Testament taught. They're the ones to whom the prophets were sent, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Uh, they're the ones who gathered at the synagogue each Saturday. And astoundingly, and this, was, this would be hugely offensive for Jesus, a Jewish man, to say in that culture. Uh, astoundingly, Jesus said... Some of them are not going to end up at the feast, the party in heaven, but instead are going to end up in outer darkness. That's a terrifying picture, isn't it? It's Jesus' description of hell, and if, it's almost an offhand comment. It's not like he's, he's decided to give a sermon on hell. It's just that he, he believes in hell, and, and it, it's just there in the background all along. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm not sure he's trying to give a, a literal description of hell. Uh, we don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but certainly Jesus is trying to communicate to us it, it's horror and terror. And if we're going to be faithful to Jesus, we, we can't tone this down. Okay? We can't put our thumb over these verses in the Bible, tip X them out. Uh, we can't talk about all the good things Jesus says about loving our neighbour or all the lovely pictures of heaven, the banquet and then pretend this isn't here as well. You take the whole of Jesus, or you take none of him at all. And so he talks about hell being a place of darkness. It's terrifying, isn't it, when you're trapped and you can't see anything at all. Those poor boys in that cave in Thailand. He talks about it being a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. No escape, no comfort, no end. It is serious. In fact, it's so serious that Jesus regularly warns people to do anything to avoid ending up there. It would be unloving of Jesus not to talk about a reality that he knows better than any. And the reason it's particularly striking here is it is the sons of the kingdom that are in danger of going. It is those who've grown up within the church, as it were, within the people of God. And that's why these verses are a warning to us. It is not simply the case that 
anyone who's been baptised or has gone along to church a few times heads off to heaven. Here it is those who've received the, the sign. It would have been circumcision in the Old Testament rather than baptism, but they equate to the same thing. It's those who've taken the Passover, the kind of equivalent of the Lord's Supper uh, that we share. It's those who've sung the very psalms that we've sung this morning. He would have sung Psalm 121. Who would have heard Psalm 66 call them to worship. It is those people who end up here in hell. And why? Well, the dividing line is simply this. Do they have faith in Christ or not? It doesn't matter their background. It doesn't matter how privileged their upbringing. It doesn't matter how many times they've sung hymns, heard the Bible read. Uh, What matters is, do they show faith? This is really stark and really important for us. Many of us have grown up in church. Many of us are here week in, week out. Uh, Children, you're growing up with the great privilege of uh, growing up in Christian families and hearing the Bible taught. But we must respond in faith. We must put our faith in Jesus. Because that makes all the difference between having an eternity at a party and eternity in darkness. Faith is open to all and makes the difference between heaven and hell, put very simply. So, faith, open to all. Secondly, faith looks to Jesus. We've touched on this already. Faith looks to Jesus. Uh, This is a powerful man, the centurion. He'd have been in charge of at least 100 men, and he'd have had people under him, sort of lesser soldiers. He's a bit like, maybe like a colonel nowadays, sort of halfway up the ranks of the army. Not at the top, but nowhere near the bottom. But he knows he's helpless. Do you see the problem he has in verse 6? Lord, my servant is lying paralysed at home, suffering terribly. He's a powerful man. He's probably been involved in battles and wars and won great victories. He's still alive after all. But he can do nothing in these circumstances. His servant, who he clearly cares for, which is very admirable. In in Roman society, on the whole, servants were just treated like objects. Uh, One Roman uh, author uh, wrote, uh, what's what's the difference between a slave, uh, a dog and a table? And the answer was, uh, the slave can talk. Other than that, there is no difference. They're all just objects to be used. That was the Roman mindset. And this guy is clearly different. He cares for his servant, but he knows he is utterly unable to help him. The the, the boy is at home. He is paralysed. He can't walk. And he's suffering terribly. In fact, the other account in Luke that tells the same story tells us he's on the point of death. So this guy is dying. And where does the centurion turn to help? For help? Or to Jesus? Lord My servant is lying paralysed at home. Lord, you come and help. You are my only hope. You are the only one who can rescue. And he understands something about Jesus, therefore, doesn't he? It's wrapped up in the little illustration he uses from verse 9. I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, another, come, and he comes. And my servant, to my servant, do this, and he does it. Do you see what he's saying? There's a slightly odd illustration but the the centurion is saying look I'm I have both people above me and below me I'm a man under authority so ultimately the emperor is above me there's probably a few ranks between him and the emperor but but ultimately the emperor is above me and there are others below me so when I speak I speak with the authority of those above me okay when the centurion gives his orders one of his soldiers can't say well you know I'm not gonna listen to you Because ultimately, if he says, I'm not listening to you, he's saying, I'm not listening to the emperor, the one who runs the whole world, the whole Roman world. 
Therefore, the centurion says a word and it happens because those under him know that he has authority. He speaks in the name of the emperor. And, and the centurion recognises that it's, it's kind of the same with Jesus. Jesus is speaking and can speak in the name of God. Uh, Jesus, too, is a man with authority and a man who, when he speaks, speaks with God's authority. Now, we don't know exactly how much the centurion understood about is Jesus fully God? Is he? The rest of the Bible makes it really clear that Jesus is God. Okay, the Son, he's the God the Son, he's equal with God the Father. Okay, they're both fully God. It's not like Jesus is a kind of a bit less powerful or something, or, or a sort of number two in the Trinity. No far from it. But Jesus, of course, is also man. He's become man. So as man, he is under God's authority. Okay? Man is never equal with God in that sense. So Jesus, man, is under authority. That's why he says at the end of the gospel, for example, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He says, Jesus, didn't you always have authority? You're God. Well, yes, as far as he's God, he did always have authority, but now he's been given authority as a man as well. And that authority is complete. The, 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 The centurion understands that there is no area in this world that is not under Jesus' authority. It's not just that Jesus can command his disciples, his followers, to obey him. Lots of people can do that. Even disease answers to Jesus. Just say a word and he will be healed. Just say a word. And in that sense, again, it is remarkable faith. The centurion understands that Jesus has complete authority. And that should be such an encouragement to us. There is now a man on the throne of heaven. Okay, again, as the story unfolds, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Everything that happens on, on the, the face of the planet happens under Jesus' authority. Nothing is outside of his control. So the question to us really is, do we believe that little word all? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Or do we think that Jesus really is sort of in charge of my spiritual life? So I pray to him for forgiveness for my sins. Perhaps I pray to him for growing my faith. But I don't seriously think that he's in charge of my work life, that he could do much about illness, or that he's in control of anything outside the little sphere of Christchurch Central or other churches. You can often tell how... Uh, how much we think of Jesus' authority, but by looking at what things we bring to him in prayer. Do we think he has authority over my marriage, my children, my work? How do my prayers reflect my understanding of Jesus' authority? Because ultimately what this centurion is doing is praying, isn't he? He's coming and saying to Jesus, Lord, help me. It's a face-to-face prayer. We don't get that now. Jesus isn't in the room. We'll think about that in a moment. But ultimately what he's doing is praying. And he doesn't ask Jesus to ask God on his behalf to do it. He doesn't come to Jesus and say, Lord, will you pray for my servant? He understands that Jesus will act, that Jesus acts with God's full authority. Lord, heal. I say, how are you respecting Christ's authority? Are you entrusting everything in your life to him? Or have you compartmentalised little sections that belong to him and others that, well, you'll handle yourself? 
I wonder too, if we see faith as the thing you do at the beginning of the Christian life. Yeah, I believed in Jesus when I became a Christian. And now I kind of have to get on with it myself. It's easy, I think, to, to think that, that trusting Jesus and his forgiveness and his power is something you do to, to, to start off the journey. But then effectively, Jesus says to you, and from now on, you, you better go on with it on your own. But that's not at all the way of the Christian life. The whole Christian life is meant to be one of reliance on Jesus, of faith, if you like. There's no minute between the moment I become a Christian and the moment I die that I'm meant to take just complete responsibility for on my own. All along, I'm meant to be entrusting everything to him, asking for his help. I ought to be praying, Lord, help me go on as a Christian. Help me grow in holiness. Help me to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Everything is under his authority, and so therefore everything needs to be brought to him in prayer. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. Are you looking to Jesus daily? hourly or have we just begun to become self-reliant i can handle this bit on my own i'll be all right at work today i'll be all right at school today but i will pray to you when things look tougher no faith looks to jesus in all circumstances and then thirdly and finally faith knows absence isn't an obstacle faith knows absence isn't an obstacle i think this is perhaps what most amazes jesus about this man's faith Uh, Jesus says, when he hears about this servant, uh, Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion says no, doesn't he? Children, did you notice that? The centurion says, no, don't come to my house, which is a bit of a surprise. Surely that's what he wants. Well, no, not quite. Not quite. What does he say, verse 8? Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's a good start. He understands that he doesn't have a right to call on Jesus. Time and again, we'll see it in, in these chapters that, that, are, that faith is coupled with humility. We don't think that Jesus owes us anything. He doesn't owe us blessing. So there's a right humility. Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But, but, but it's more amazing than that, I think. His faith is more amazing than that. He says, you don't need to come. Just say a word and my servant will be healed. You don't need to be there. The centurion says, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house, but you just don't, you don't even need to touch my servant. Just say a word here in the street and he'll be saved. He'll be healed miles away at home. The centurion knows that Jesus' physical absence is not an obstacle to Jesus' healing, to Jesus' saving. It's only strengthened by the fact uh, that, that if we read the parallel account in, in Luke 7, we, we realise that actually Matthew has kind of shortened the story. Now, we, I don't often want to do this because it can get confusing, but I think it's useful uh, at times, just every now and again, to compare the same story in, in the two Gospels. Just, just look at Luke 7. Okay, it's useful for two reasons, I think. Luke 7 is the equivalent story. That's uh, page 863. I'm going to read it and... See if you can play spot the difference, because it's not exactly the same as the, is the, the Matthew account. Luke 7 and verse 1, 863. Okay, see if you can play here the difference, I guess. Uh, after he'd finished all these sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Well, that's the same. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. That's the same. He was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews 
asking him to come and heal his servant. Huh, that wasn't in Matthew, was it? Matthew says the centurion came. Luke says the centurion sent servants. What's going on there? We've got a problem here. Is Matthew and Luke disagreeing? Has one of them made a mistake? Is there a contradiction? Well, no. We know that partly because God writes all the Bible. It's not going to contradict itself. All scriptures God breeds. These aren't just human authors. But, but also, that we need to understand that when Matthew and Luke write, and indeed Mark and John, it's not as if they're sitting there watching, writing down literally every single thing that happened in order. Okay? They're, not, they're not like um, the kind of reports you get in court where the, the typist is literally typing down every word said, every coffin. Now, what they're doing is retelling the story, but with a particular angle, a particular agenda. So they don't always need to insert every detail. Luke, therefore, is a fuller account. Uh, He explains that the way that the centurion got the message to Jesus is by sending the elders. Uh, Matthew, he's not fussed with all this a little bit, so he just cuts to the chase. The centurion asked Jesus. It's a bit like when you hear in the news, you know, um, yesterday the president of America said we're going to cut taxes. Now, almost certainly... The president of America didn't say that yesterday. Almost certainly, it was a spokesman. So it works. There's no way that, that Donald Trump, even Donald Trump on Twitter, can't announce everything. Okay? The way they do it is they get the spokesman out, and the spokesman stands there behind the you know, little thing with the, royal, with the royal seal. He's not royal, is he? You know, the presidential seal, and announces. Okay? Most government announcements work that way. Well, similarly here, when Matthew says the centurion appealed to Jesus... He doesn't bother telling us that actually it was through the elders of the local synagogue. But, but the point here is not simply to show how the whole Bible can fit together and they don't actually contradict. These, these are the kind of verses people get hold of and say, oh, look, the Bible doesn't actually... Uh, well, the Bible does contradict itself. Well, no, that's not true. These, these things can be reconciled. But the point is, Luke shows us, it's not just that the centurion says, you don't need to be in the room, Jesus. The centurion isn't even with Jesus. The centurion asked someone to ask Jesus to help. Faith knows that Jesus' absence, physical absence, is not an obstacle to him working. And that is such an important principle now. Where is Jesus? Children, let me ask you, children, where's Jesus now? Where is Jesus now? Okay, go on, where's Jesus now? Well, look at that. See, the right hand of the Father. Someone's been learning their creeds. Very good. See, and where is that? Where's the Father? In. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. See, the right hand of the Father in heaven. That's right. So, Jesus, in terms of his physical body, he's in heaven, isn't he? He's not in Leeds. He's not in Derby. He's not in Capernaum anymore. He's sat at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Of course, it's God. He's everywhere. We know that. But he is sat in heaven. Does that mean that he is somehow less able to help us than if he was stood next to you in the room. Not at all. That's one of the so exciting things about this story. He doesn't need to be physically with you to help you, to answer. He's not limited by time and space in that way. The story we looked at before Matthew, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 8, the leper had to come and touch Jesus. Jesus touched him and he was healed. And that might make us think, well, that's great if you're with Jesus, but now we're apart. We're, we don't have access to that same kind of power, that same kind of cleansing. If I want my heart to be cleansed, for example, I can't have Jesus reach out and touch me. But all that needs to happen is Jesus issue a word from wherever he is, now in heaven at the control room of the universe, and it comes to pass. 
That's why such this passage, I think, is a huge encouragement to pray. Jesus' physical absence is not an obstacle. Imagine, again, children, imagine if, if Jesus was constantly with you. When he went to school, okay, he was just behind you. And, and you, you, know, you, you got worried about something, you wanted to pray about it, you'd just turn and ask him, wouldn't you? He'd just be there. Wouldn't it be great to have him stood on your shoulder all the time, ready to answer, ready to answer, ready to answer? Well, this passage tells us it doesn't matter that he's not physically next to you. You have the same access to his power. Just speak and he can answer. He can exert all the authority that has been given to him by his father from that throne in heaven. And it's as if he stood next to you uh, in the room. How much more would we pray? How much more would we ask him for stuff if he was stood next to us? How much more prayerful would we be? It would change your life, wouldn't it? If, if he was just walking around the whole time? You're beginning to get ratty uh, in the car and he's in the passenger seat. Lord, can you help me? Yep. Begin to lose your patience with the children, begin to get worried at work. Whatever it might be, just a word, just a word, just a word, and he answers. But he is. It's just that he sat in heaven, you can't see him. And that's why the call for us now is to live by faith and not by sight. It's one of the descriptions of faith. Faith knows absence isn't an obstacle. And so as we close, let's just remember that it is Jesus who saves the centurion's boy. Not faith exactly. Faith, if you like, is the sort of delivery mechanism. It doesn't do the work. The boy is saved by Jesus, not by faith. And same with our faith. You might feel you have very little faith, but, but that doesn't matter if that faith is in Jesus. Because the power comes from Jesus, not the strength of your faith. And that says, again, children, it's a bit like, imagine someone who's ill. Okay, you're ill and you go to hospital and the doctor comes along with a syringe full of drugs to make you better and injects you. Okay. Now, what, what saves you? What makes you better? Well, you could say the doctor makes me better. That's the person who makes me better. Or you could say the medicine makes me better. But you wouldn't say the syringe may be better, would you? That's just a little kind of delivery vehicle for the medicine that does make you better. Well, in that sense, faith is, is like the syringe. It's just the thing that connects us to the person, Jesus, who really saves us, and his work, okay, his death and resurrection, the medicine, if you like, the power that he pours onto us. Faith doesn't save anyone. Jesus does. But Jesus calls us to rely on him in faith, to turn from trusting in our own selves or in anything else, uh, not just for physical healing. Sometimes Jesus heals physically, sometimes he doesn't. Ultimately, we all die. But what he has promised is that anyone who turns to him in faith and says, heal me from my sin, forgive me, then whatever they've done, however unholy they are, whatever background they're from, they will be invited to that wedding feast. They'll have eternity of glory. And the terrors of the darkness and the gnashing of teeth will no longer be for them. That is his invitation. Put your trust in me and welcome to the banquet. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray knowing that faith is a gift, that you would shower that gift on us, on our friends, on our families, on our colleagues, on our neighbours. Father, make us, we pray, into a people who cast all our anxieties, all our burdens uh, on Jesus.
Uh, make us, we pray, those who live by faith and not by sight, who aren't thrown by the fact that we can't see Jesus, but instead are minute by minute, hour by hour, uh, relying on him and bringing everything to him in prayer. And kill off, we pray, any self-reliance uh, and give us an increasing measure, uh, the certainty of faith, knowing that Jesus is on the throne of the universe and that all things, all authorities in his hands uh, and that he holds uh, the keys to that great banquet uh, in heaven. So Father, pour the Spirit on us, we pray, uh, and grow our faith that he might be honoured. Amen.